identity has become a popular concept in society. We often associate with particular groups based on our identity. Identity and culture, identifying with particular political parties, identifying ourselves by our ethnicity, sexuality, by our entertainment choices. Identity is a particularly important aspect to American culture. As we think about our identity, though, as Christians, here the Apostle Paul positions Timothy in a way to reflect upon his identity in Christ. He wants us to think about what and how we live. Particularly in the context of young Timothy, he was to find his identity in who he was in Christ, not necessarily in his opposition to false teachers. Paul here wants Timothy to reflect upon his identity in Christ and the task before him. In addressing Timothy as, O man of God, the Apostle Paul was reminding Timothy of who he was and why he had been sent to the church in Ephesus. And in the context of chapter 6, the Apostle Paul here is contrasting false teachers with true teachers. Of course, as we've considered over the last number of weeks, Paul is sending Timothy into a context in which there is a plethora of false teachers. Where there is uh, a number of men and women leading the congregation against the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here this morning, Timothy is to exemplify the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through his behavior and his enduring confession of Jesus as king. The confession that Jesus himself will see declared himself that Jesus alone is the eternal king who rules and reigns over all. This is the context by which we find 1 Timothy chapter 6 in our thoughts this morning. So I invite you to turn there if you've not done so already. 1 Timothy chapter 6. This morning we're going to be considering verses 11 through 16. And then in a number of weeks we will conclude this letter in the month of March. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Christians are to become more like Christ in their everyday life. That's what Paul is teaching here in this passage. That Christians are to become more like Christ by embracing our new identity 
through a continual fleeing of sin and pursuit of holiness until Christ returns. If we were to ask the question differently, we say, what do Christians do? What is the primary activity of a Christian? Paul summarizes here helpfully. It is a dual approach. Two sides of the same coin. We are to flee sin and pursue Christ. We are to flee from and run towards Jesus. This is what it looks like. Jesus would say it this way. If you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You have to flee sin. You have to die to sin and live for me. And so the purpose of our time this morning is to encourage each of us to embrace all that is ours in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is calling us to here. That the way that we fight against false doctrine is by living right lives. By living lives of holiness. And young Timothy was to fight against the false doctrine of these false teachers by living and having a true commitment to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ expressed, exemplified in his life. So this morning I have four points I want us to consider. Four ways that you and I, that we together embrace who we are in Christ. We saw first that we embrace who we are in Christ by living rightly. By living rightly. Secondly, we'll see by remaining faithful. A part of the Christian life is not only living holy, but remaining faithful. Thirdly, we'll see by keeping the gospel pure. And fourth and finally, by giving our great God glory. Consider with me first here in verse 11. Paul here says that we embrace who we are in Christ by living rightly. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. He says that young Timothy, embrace who you are. Embrace this identity. He, he identifies him as a man of God. Now, of course, this is Old Testament language that Paul is using. Men like Moses was described as a man of God. King David described as what? A man after God's own heart. A man of God. These great leaders in the nation of Israel whom Timothy would have grown up hearing from his grandmother and his mother, he himself was to embrace that he was God's man for this church. Timothy was to embrace this both expressed in his service for God and his devotion to God. He was to go to Ephesus and serve God, to be God's man for the church, to lead that church through the difficult waters of false teaching. But he was to do it as devotion to God. He was not merely just to serve God, but rather to devote his life to God. And so he, so Paul here is calling Timothy to action by reminding him that he has a job that is not his own. Just a number of weeks ago, I was talking with uh, some fellow pastors and a particular pastor said that uh, he didn't feel he, he had served as a senior pastor and, and he felt the Lord was calling him to be an associate pastor. And I responded uh, kind of humorously. I said, it is the dream of every senior pastor to be an associate pastor. Uh, 
And it's true. Um, because of the emotional and spiritual weight that is put upon uh, regular preaching pastors. Uh, it, 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 it's hard work. It's, it's difficult. You say, well, preacher, it's, it's not that hard. You just get up there and talk for an hour. Um, and it, it's hard, right? And it's a difficult job. In other words, we don't do it because we like it. We do it because we're called to it, right? And so there's a difference. And this is what Paul is doing. He's saying, listen, Timothy, I know you're not down there in Ephesus because you like people to uh, uh, ridicule you and you like people to call you out. You, you, I know you're not down in Ephesus because you're looking to make a lot of money. You're down there because you are God's man for the job. You are to serve God in this particular role. And so Paul here is reminding Timothy that he is to live rightly as God's man. He is a representative of God. Brothers and sisters, when we claim the name of Christ, we are claiming Jesus as our own and telling others the same. So when we live wrongly, we are casting shame upon King Jesus. And this is what Paul is encouraging Timothy. And so he says to him, O man of God, flee these things. In other words, flee sin. In the immediate context here, it would most likely refer to the love of money there in verse 10. This is what we considered last week. The false teachers had a love for money. But we saw in the letter there are three main aspects to the false teachers. Number one, their uh, manipulation of the law. They were taking the law and manipulating it in a way that was creating a works righteousness. On top of that, coupled with the second issue of asceticism. So not only were they taking the law and falsely and wrongly applying it to the Christian life, they, were, they, they had a, an ascetic bent to them. In other words, the true way to holiness or rightness before God was by removing things from one's life. Now you and I experience it this way. I'm more spiritual than you because I don't do certain things. Right. I don't watch a certain television show or I don't listen to certain types of music because I'm more spiritual than you. Right. I don't consume certain beverages because I'm more spiritual than you. You see that? And so Timothy was tempted even there to not consume alcohol as a medicinal ailment for his stomach because he had been duped into believing that the abstaining from alcohol made one more spiritual. We thought about that a number of weeks ago. And so Paul is telling Timothy, you need to flee these things. Run from them. Don't be tempted by them. This is interesting. Even preachers of the gospel can be tempted by sin, right? They're sinners too. And as Christians, we embrace who we are in Christ in that aspect of fleeing sin, but also in our pursuit of Christ's likeness. Notice how he continues. He says that you are to flee these things and pursue something else. And he lists here six attributes. Righteousness, righteousness being not forensic righteousness, that is declarative righteousness, being declared right before God, but rather uh, right living. You see the word right in there? Right living before God. Living rightly before Him. Godliness is a reflection of God-likeness. Faith, 
Love, two words that Paul often pairs together in his letters. Uh, Timothy was to pursue faith. He was to pursue love. These things do not come natural to us. Sin comes naturally. We, through the process of sanctification, pursue these things. Steadfastness or endurance. One of the regular attributes of a growing Christian is a growing steadfastness in life. A growing patience, endurance. This is why the Apostle Paul often would use, and even as we heard um, by the author of Hebrews, this this, um, athletic language, right, of running a race. This is a good picture, right, of, of the Christian life, running a race. To run requires endurance. It requires perseverance to fight through, to do something. Finally, here he says gentleness. Interestingly enough, you find... I mean, as you read through that list, no doubt you say, well, of course, righteousness is there. Of course, godliness, we need to be godly and have faith. And well, of course, we have to love one another and and steadfastness. But gentleness makes the list. Isn't it interesting how Paul is contextualizing even here for young Timothy, what he is up against? Remember, he is fighting a spiritual battle. He's fighting a battle against false teachers. And one might be tempted when dealing with false teachers to be a jerk. But he's to be gentle. It's a reminder that Timothy's primary responsibility is to be a pastor, not a theologian. Pastors need to be theologians, but that's not their primary task. They're to be shepherds. They need to be patient. They need to be gentle. Yes, they have to get sheep from point A to point B, but they have to do so patiently and gently and wisely. That's the work of a pastor, to gently lead people. They can't grow bitter and angry or frustrated when someone isn't as holy as they should be or righteous as they should be or doesn't seem to have the right doctrines all in a row. But it is to be gentle with folks. To slowly, over time, lead them towards greater likeness to Christ. And you and I as Christians, this is not only for young Timothy, but for us. Our lives should be exemplified by right living. We ought to live rightly. Now notice I don't say live perfectly, immaculately, but rightly. For is your life characterized by a continually of fleeing sin and pursuing Christ? Is there sin that you are actively fleeing from? This is good. Do not be discouraged in your fleet from sin. Of course, one of the most beautiful pictures of fleeing from sin is what? Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife. Friend, we, we've got to flee. Or what we heard from Hebrews chapter 12, let us throw off the sin which clings so tightly or so closely to us. Friend, daily you ought to be laying sin, putting to death sin, and living in righteousness. What sin are you killing in your life? Are you fleeing from? But also, it's not just fleeing from something, it's fleeing to something else. Where to flee from sin and to pursue Christ-likeness. What characteristics do you need to grow in, brother, sister? Where area do you need to grow in love? 
Do you need to grow in gentleness? Do you need to grow in righteousness and godliness? Where do you need to grow? Where are you going? We ought to live rightly before God. Embrace who we are in Christ. Secondly, we hear, we see here in verse 12 that we are to embrace who we are in Christ by remaining faithful. Timothy is surrounded by casualties of war. Men like that we learned about there at the beginning of the letter. Hymenus and Alexander, whom Paul had handed over Satan because of their sin. They had drifted away. Timothy was going into a war zone where there was casualties of war. There was men and women who had abandoned the faith. And Timothy was to remain faithful. Look here at verse 12. Paul says to him, he exhorts him, he says, fight the good fight of the faith. Notice the language that Paul uses there, fight. But he doesn't say just fight for fight's sake. You know, some Christians just like to fight all the time. Just go to Christian Twitter. If you're on Twitter, just look, it's despicable. A bunch of Christians fighting with one another. No, no, no. He says fight what? The good fight. There's a right fight. There's a good fight that we should be fighting. The fight of the faith. The fight which is contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The faith, definite article. He's referring to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Timothy was to remain faithful to the Lord, faithful to the gospel. Paul here shows him a present fight before him. He was to fight to remain in the faith. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that following Christ is an active voice. It is not passive. All right, we are saved by grace passively, but there is an active responsibility for you and I to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, and we do not believe that that sort of things just rush over us and we just, you know, we just make it to heaven one day. No, no, no. There is a responsibility that yes, God sovereignly saves, but we also have the responsibility to believe. We have to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to trust. And depend, and that is a daily activity. And friends, it is good. some days you're going to be more faithful, and some some days you're going to be less faithful, and it's going to be that ever ebb and flow. But but what keeps us, what reminds us, is what Paul goes on to say. Notice what he says. He says, "Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of what the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul says, look, you have a present fight before you, but guess what? You have a future reality that you need to grab hold of. He assures him in his present battle with these false teachers that he has a secure future. He says, take hold of that which is yours. It is as sure as done. Eternity for the believers is written in concrete. So while we are called to remain faithful, we know that all those who are truly saved endure to the end. Someone asks, can you lose your salvation? No. Well, what about those who leave? What about those who abandon the faith? What about them? Well, what is what does first John say? They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Someone asks, how do I know if someone's saved? Did they endure to the end? That's the only way you really know. 
did they endure to the end. The the assurance of salvation is the endurance that Paul is calling Timothy here to. He says, you must endure the fight in front of you by taking hold of what is yours in Christ. You see, part of our responsibility as Christians is grabbing hold of what is yours. It is yours, friend. It is yours. You, You did not earn it. It is by grace alone through Christ. But it is yours. Just because you didn't buy it doesn't make it any less yours. It is a gift. And part of our responsibility is embracing this gift and saying that it is ours. It is mine. And I will believe upon it. Take hold, young Timothy, of the eternal life which which you were called. We were called to this. The invitation was extended to us. Notice the passive nature in which Paul identifies this eternal life. It was not something that we pursued, but it is something that we are to take hold of. Now notice what he does here. He, he's, he, he has Timothy's mind in three places. First, in the present. He's like, look at the fight in front of you. And then he says, Timothy, I want you to look, I want you to look ahead. I want you to take hold of your future. But then notice what he does at the end of the verse. He says, and in doing this fight, I want you to not only look ahead, but also look behind. Look at the past, he says. Remember your past confession. Notice what he says. And about which you, Timothy, made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He says, Timothy, I want you to remain faithful to what you've always believed since the day you were born again. Nothing has changed. Nothing is new. It's the same gospel, the same God. Most likely here, what Paul is referring to is Timothy's baptism, which baptism is that that moment in which we publicly proclaim that we are following Christ. This is where we, in the words of Bobby Jameson, go public with our faith in Christ. That's what baptism is. We're, We're kind of going out and we're saying, look, I'm following Jesus And to demonstrate that I'm following Jesus. I'm going to do what Jesus did. And Jesus was baptized. Therefore, I'm going to be baptized. And we're declaring to the world that we're followers of Jesus. And Timothy was to remember that moment in time as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a firm foundation of where and what God had been doing in his life. Now you might remember, and we, we, of course we don't have this here with us, but if we were just to turn over one page in your Bible and go to 2 Timothy, you'll know, you'll learn that Timothy learned how to follow Jesus from his grandmother and his mother. And by calling him to remember his confession, he was calling him to remember who shared the gospel with him. In other words, he stands on the shoulders of giants that came before him. And for this is why as Christians, we read old dusty documents This is why we read documents like the Apostles' Creed that's some 1,800 years old. Or why we just read language that's from the 1833 New Hampshire Confession of Faith that Christians almost 200 years ago were reading publicly just like you all did today. We believe in a gospel that is not new. And this is what the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13 said. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. You see, our past confession of faith ought to give us assurance. 
that if little old me could confess that so many years ago, then surely I can continue to confess it today. We look to the past to see how far God has grown us and to encourage us to continue. Some of us have made it further than others. Some of us have grown. But if you're in Christ, everyone has grown. So this morning, if you're discouraged that, man, I haven't grown as much as I've liked to, don't allow that to disable you from growth. Remaining faithful to Jesus is reflecting on Jesus has brought me to this point. You were called, he says, pass, passive. You didn't call yourself on the phone. God called you out of darkness into light. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Friend, do you believe that? Yes, you have a responsibility to remain faithful. But at the end of the day, we're not going to look back and say, wow, look at what I've done with my life. But it's going to be, look at what God has done through me. And so we remain faithful because of that. Well, thirdly, here we, we ought not to only remain faithful, but part of embracing who we are in Christ is embracing some responsibility that we have, and that is to keep the gospel pure. In the context of 1 Timothy, Timothy was to remember God is present with him in his task. Paul here in verse 13 gives Timothy a solemn charge. And it's a solemn charge because he invokes the presence of God. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. This is one of those verses that gets you to sit up in your pew. When Timothy was reading this letter, this caused pause and awe. Timothy was reminded he doesn't work for Paul. He doesn't work for the church in Ephesus. He works for the eternal God of the cosmos. The one whom is described here is the one who gives life to all things. What a sweet reminder to one who is suffering for the faith. He was reminded that God is the one who is in control of all things. The one who gives life to those very people in those pews were the ones that God had breathed life into. And Timothy was to embrace them and appreciate them. But more than that, he was to remember that God was with him. That our God is a living God. He's not a dead God. He's a God who's ever active, ever present among his people. That God is with us in our tasks. And in the trenches of spiritual warfare, there is nothing more encouraging, nothing more exhilarating than knowing that God is in it and God is with us. Henry Blackaby, y'all remember old Henry Blackaby and Richard Blackaby? Henry Blackaby says this in his book, Flickering Lamps. He says that God will not, and particularly Jesus, will not resource your plans for his church. But he will stop at nothing to resource his plans for his church. Isn't that a reminder this morning that God is with us if we're with God? And he's with us 
here. And Paul is telling young Timothy that you must keep that gospel pure. You must guard it and you must fight against false teaching. A very difficult fight, but you must do it because God is with you. But notice here, not only is God the Father, he refers to Jesus. He says of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Well, this is twice now that Paul has used that word, good confession. What confession? Well, the basic confession that Jesus is king. Paul here is referring to that moment. You remember when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, he was pretty quiet. It was infuriating Pilate. He wanted Jesus to basically indict himself with some word. He wanted, to, he wanted some reason, a thread of hope of, of some reason to acquit Jesus or convict Jesus. In other words, Pilate wanted to go home that night resting peacefully on his bed knowing that he did the right thing. That he executed a man for the right reasons or he let a man free for the right reasons. And he's growing frustrated with Jesus. And there's this moment where Jesus finally reveals who he is. He says, for this reason, I came into the world. For this reason, my father, to be king of the world. And Jesus makes that declarative statement that he is the king of kings, that he has authority over Pontius Pilate, that Pilate thinks that he is ultimately in charge. But what does Jesus say? He turns the table on Pilate and he says, hey, for this reason, I came. And I'm laying down my life willingly. No one is nailing me to that cross. I'm going willingly to the cross to die for sin. And he's confessing that he is king, that he is the sovereign one. And that is what Christians confess. When, when we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, what we are confessing is that Jesus is king. You see, the Bible tells us that God created man to live in relationship to him. That you and I have been created where he is king. That he's in charge. But the Bible also tells us that man rebelled against God. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They said, you know, God, we understand you, you've told us these things that we should do. But, you know, we think we can make better choices for, with our lives. And so we're going to choose to be our own kings and queens. We're going to live life our way rather than your way. And, and Adam and Eve took that crown and they, said, and they put it upon their head. And God said, fine, you want to you be your old king? That's fine. Get out of my kingdom. And he banished them into the wilderness. And he guarded the, the garden with the cherubim. And they were not allowed to be in the presence of God because they had chosen them to go their own way. And God cursed them and death entered the world because of that. But God sent his son to be king. And when we believe upon the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, and when we repent, what we are saying is that we are now going to go God's way. We're, gonna, we're taking the crown off of our head and we're saying, Jesus, you are king you're the one that is going to tell us how to live. That's a part of keeping the gospel pure. It's about guarding our teaching and our life from error. It's declaring that Jesus is the one true king. This is why Paul goes on there in verse 14 to say, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, our responsibility is to keep the gospel pure by guarding the gospel teaching that goes on in the life of the local church. There are two aspects of gospel teaching that have to be guarded. Number one, what we say. And number two, how we live. Paul refers here to the gospel teaching as the commandment. Now, he's not referring to Old Testament commandments. He's referring to the command that he gave Timothy all the way back in verse 1. Excuse me, verse 3 of chapter 1. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to teaching, to devote themselves rather to myths and English genealogies, which promotes speculation. Timothy had a responsibility and he was to guard the gospel by guarding his teaching and life from error. And he was to keep going until the Lord returns. Brothers and sisters, we have a particular responsibility that does not diminish over time, but is passed on like a baton to each generation, and that is guarding the gospel. That's what we're to do. We have a responsibility. The preaching ministry has a responsibility. But brothers and sisters, this is a congregational church. Which means that you have the responsibility to ensure that the gospel remains pure. That you stand strong against theological error. And you do so until Jesus comes again. This responsibility that was first given to Timothy continues on down through the generations and will continue if the Lord tarries for thousands of more years. Though our prayer is that he comes quickly. And so when we are dead and gone, we hope that the baton was passed to the next generation and the next generation and so on down the line that the gospel remains the same yesterday and today and forever. But not only are we to keep the gospel pure, we are to give God great glory for his greatness. As Paul is caught up with this task of what young Timothy is to do, he is drawn into worship. Notice how he ends this particular section here. He says, which he, that is Christ Jesus, will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who is never who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Paul's mind is taken up with the transcendence of this one God whom we serve. Again, this is a moment in which young Timothy would have been kind of uh, brought to an alert state. A reminder of whom he serves and to who gets the glory. This one transcendent God, the only God. Him who is described as blessed and only. He is a singular God. He is the only sovereign one. Not only that, we see here that he is invincible. Notice how Paul describes God. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Nothing is more ironic than a king who thinks he's truly in charge. Then when the realization comes that no, there is one more supreme. Our God is invincible. He has supreme authority and power over every leader in this world. This is why leadership is so valuable and so important. Why we must not despise leadership. 
while we must, as Christians, invest in good leadership. Because leadership reflects the character of God. And when leadership is broken down and distorted, then God's leadership is distorted. And Timothy was to exemplify good leadership by reminding the congregation that God alone has supreme authority and power, that he is the king and Lord over all. Not only is he invincible, but we see here that he is immortal. Verse 16, who alone has immortality. Notice the singular nature of his who alone is immortal. Friends, we are mortal beings. The life we have is not ours. It was given to us by God. God breathed life into us and that life will be taken away. We will not live physically forever. That is a humbling reality that we ought to settle into our minds and soul that we are only temporary but that God is eternal. It points to the power of God that he is immortal. There is a divine uniqueness in him. He, look at here, look at the word alone. There is no one like our God, no one to rival him, no one to oppose him, no one to take his throne. He is alone. He is alone. He has no beginning. He has no end. He exists outside of time. He is immortal. And he lives in a holy habitation. Who, no one, who dwells, rather, in unapproachable light. Our God is so unique that no one can just willy-nilly approach our God. He is in unapproachable light. Like Moses crying out, God, let me see your presence. Nope. Or Elijah there on the mountain Lord, let me just see something of you. No. Our God is so separate, utterly unique. Our God is invincible. He's immortal and he is invisible. Notice whom no one has ever seen or can see. Our God is utterly separate from this creation. He is supreme over it. Again, Paul here is invoking this doxology to point to the transcendence of God, his supremacy over all, that God is over and reigns over his church. This is his. It's not ours. It's his gospel. It's his plan. It's his purposes. And our response to this revelation ought to be all at the greatness of our God. Our God is great and he's greater than all. We ought not to be discouraged in a world that continues to perpetually rebel against God. We ought not to grow angry or frustrated with the society in which we find ourselves. Friends, this society that these Christians were in was much more deplorable than our own. We ought never to lose hope in humanity, in those who are lost in need of a Savior. We ought never to look and despise our neighbors because they're living in immorality and sin. But we ought to see that God reigns over all, that His gospel is powerful enough to save, to save even us.
Friend, our God is the great King of kings. He will not, never, allow the perpetuation of rebellion against him. He will come, as we read earlier, to judge the living and the dead. You can guarantee that, friend. You will stand before this God one day and you will have nothing in your hand. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. The only hope that you have, the only hope that the Christians in this room have, is the death of Christ for their behalf. His life in exchange for our life. Friend, I pray that's your hope this morning. I pray that as a church we embrace Christ and embrace our new identity by fleeing sin, by pursuing holiness, by living rightly, remaining faithful, keeping the gospel pure, and giving God the glory for it all from beginning to end. Let's pray. Father, we give you the glory through Christ.